as you know, if you've been here before, we have a testimony every uh, Thursday night before our sermon, and tonight the testimony is by Saul Lopez. So is everybody here ready to hear a crazy, amazing story? So my story starts when I was five years old. I was living in Mexico, and uh, the last vision that I had of my dad was my mom saying, get on the bus, you're never going to see him again. And that was the last time I saw him. A year later, he passed away. He was a heavy drinker. He had just... uh, pushed her to the point where she was done. And she said, I'm done living this life. And basically, we ran away. So we were getting on the bus depot, and I remember thinking, wow, like, this is really the last, I was five years old thinking, like, this is real life. Like, this is the last time I'm going to see him. And it really was. From there, she came to the U.S. and left us to the care of our 13-year-old sister. For a year and a half, I cried, and I said, Mom, when are you coming home? And she just kept saying, son, I'm just trying to work to get you guys a better life, which I truly believed. I heard about the U.S. I always heard about the white picket fences and the beautiful things that this country has to offer. So I just waited patiently night after night crying for my mom. So then eventually she got enough money to have us cross the border, not legally, illegally, which I didn't understand what that was about. But she said, you're going to get in this car. You have to be really quiet. You can't say a single thing because if you do, bad things are going to happen. So I was terrified. And sure enough, things didn't turn out the way they were supposed to. As soon as we get into this boat of a car, there's like six, seven of us in about 100 degree weather. Somebody spotted, a trucker spotted a car full of Mexicans. So he calls in to uh, the police station and they call immigration. Before I know it, we're in a high speed pursuit. I'm sitting in the front seat by now, and I'm terrified again. Don't know really what's going on. We end up spinning out of control, crashing. Uh, Only by the grace of God did I survive that accident, but it went from bad to worse. As we get out of this car, this people runner, as they call them, coyotes in Spanish, the person that I was supposed to trust grabs me and starts running, and as he starts running, he gets surrounded by police officers and immigration, and that was the first time that I thought I was going to die as I felt a fully loaded gun up to my head, and he said, if you move, I'm going to blow your head off, and at that point, I realized that I might die, and again, don't know how I got out of this one, only with God's grace. Uh, they start negotiating, saying, let him go, let him go. I, all, I, all I heard was screaming Spanish, English, and I'm at this point thinking this is how I'm going to die. He eventually lets me go, releases me. They tackle him. I spend the next week in a group home where everybody speaks English. I'm the only Spanish-speaking boy there. And that was one of the first times I felt hell on earth, um, I kept trying to communicate with people. Nobody knew my language. I cried again every single night for my mom. She showed up a week later, and immigration didn't believe that I was her son because my mom is very light-skinned, has very light eyes. I don't resemble that, obviously. So they kept telling her, you're not taking him. That's not your son. 
The only way I was released to her was because they set up a room that had cameras, mirrors, or only they could see in, and they were going to see how I reacted to her. So they go in, they set us up, and luckily I run screaming, crying for her, so it's obvious it was my mom. They released me to her after me fighting 15 minutes to try to get a watch that they took from me. It was a Mickey Mouse watch. I wasn't leaving until I got it. And my mom was like, let's just go, I'll get you know. And I was like, no, I'm not leaving. She had to drag me out of there. So luckily, I listened like a good boy. And uh, we were back in Mexico. We got deported back to Mexico. Second try of trying to cross the border, went through the desert for the first time. Uh, I saw what a dead body looked like. Somebody had actually uh, died. They could no longer take the trip anymore. They were on the ground, and to me, it just looked like they were sleeping, but they said, don't worry about it, just keep walking, so I did what I was told. And I remember hiding again, seeing the helicopters flying over us. We were hiding in bushes. We finally end up in San Diego, and I thought America was the most beautiful thing in the world because I saw cars, I saw buildings, I saw... Americans, and I was like, wow, this is my new life. About a 10-hour drive, I end up in a little town, and I thought my life was just going to be the most amazing thing. Little did I find out that my mom had some issues with herself and the men that she chose in her life. I soon became a slave to her and her new boyfriend. Uh, I remember being seven now at this point, and I was told the moment that man walks into the door, you get up, you take his shoes off, you rub his feet, you tell him whatever he needs to hear, and you do whatever he says. And I was like, this isn't the mom that I knew. This isn't the woman that I loved and I cried for every night. Now I had her, but it, certain, it suddenly was not the same. It went from every single day being a slave to both of them to the verbal abuse. Uh, my mom was always working, and I'm always very stressed. So she took it out on us. There was five of us and I was the youngest at the time. I remember many times where she would get so angry that she would say the most hateful words in the world, and those are all lies, obviously. As a young kid, you just don't know those things. There were many times where she said that she regretted having us, especially me. She said that I was a disappointment to the family. She said that she wished that she'd never had me. She said, one day you're gonna come home and I'm gonna be gone. Again, as a seven-year-old, you really believe it. So there were many nights where I would get up and walk just to see if my mom was in her room, crying the whole way, thinking she would be gone. And then it went from the verbal abuse to the physical abuse. Um, anything within reaching, she would throw at us. I had a hot iron thrown at me, pots, pans, hangers, you name it, it came at me. I, I got pretty good at maneuvering around those things. Um, just a really hard time, and then it went from that to even worse. We had my sister's oldest boyfriend who was living with us. He actually started to do some things that you don't do to a child. He introduced me to sex at a very young age. He actually had me do what you call voyeurism. Um, again, now I'm eight, have no idea why I'm being shown the things that I'm being shown. And he says, if you tell anybody, there's gonna be some problems around here. So at this point, every authority figure that I knew was not safe. Everything that I thought life was supposed to be about as a seven, eight year old was not what I believed it was. 
And this went on for two to three years. Um, I remember one night walking into his bedroom and he said, hey, I need you to come grab this thing. And I realized that I was grabbing something that wasn't appropriate. And that's when I finally said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I will tell everybody if you ever do that to me again. And I stood up for myself as an eight-year-old boy. And that was the last time he did anything. Uh, I just thank God because my home was a living hell literally every day. My only safe haven was school. I did excel in academics. And I did excel as a very good athlete. And I luckily had a soccer team that I played for that I got to travel around the country. So I spent a lot of time away from home on purpose. Um, practice four or five days a week. The weekends I was out playing, traveling around the state. But every time I came home with these brand new trophies, they really didn't get noticed. Um, I already expected it. Walk in, you're the slave again. So this was uh, my life as a kid. I was a very broken child who grew up to be a very broken man. Because although I was of age, I was stuck in a very immature area of my life. And so at that point, I was willing to accept any love versus no love. Uh, I got introduced uh, to high school buddies. All I had as a father figure was, what is everybody else doing? Like, I didn't have a dad. I didn't have a mom. So whatever my buddies were doing, that's what I thought it was, I was supposed to be doing. I believe that the prettier the girl was, the cooler you were, because that's what society tells us. The more girlfriends you have, the cooler you are, like you fit in. And so I just followed what mainstream told me. Uh, that led up to, to many broken hearts. I broke a lot of hearts, and I'm not proud of it, because I was just doing what everybody told me to do. I had my heart broken, just a very broken child. And then that also led to a lot of partying and drinking. And I remember um, I got accepted to Sac State, walked on a campus feeling like I didn't belong because I was so broken. I had no confidence at all. I remember the first time I stepped on that campus, I said, I don't belong here. I'm too stupid to be here. Even though I had a almost 4.0 average in high school, I still believed I was stupid. That's what I was told. And so I walked onto that campus saying, I don't belong here. I'm going to fail. And that's exactly what happened. Um, didn't believe in myself, my classes, my grades. I didn't want to be there. I was there to party. That's what I had done my whole life, to try to numb everything out. And I went home for uh, spring break once, uh, the first summer I was there. And then I, some of my buddies from high school said, hey, why don't we go to this party? And I was like, you know what, let's go. Luckily, thank God, so many times he saved me. I said, I'll be designated driver. Why don't you guys drink? I really don't feel like drinking. So that night we drove home, we're driving down on this country road, going around a curve, and this drunk driver's right in front of us, hits us head on. I was going about 65, according to the police report, they were going about 120 in a Mustang. And I just remember feeling the hardest impact of my life. I woke up to a dash on fire. My friend was through the windshield, my other friend was hunched over the airbag. And I did, had no idea what was going on. I had a major concussion. I woke up to blood gushing out of my mouth. I couldn't even breathe. Again, I thought, this is it for me. Again, through God's grace, I didn't die because I didn't have Jesus in my life. So I thank him for that. Uh, woke up, was in and out in consci consciousness many times. Um, and at one point, the dash was covered in flames, and I told my friend, I'm like, if you have to cut my leg out, 
You're ripping me out of here. I'm not dying in a flame. I'm not dying in a fire. I passed out. Apparently, the farmers that lived nearby heard the crash. It was so loud. They came over. Between the three of them, they were able to pull me out, pull my leg out. Uh, right after they pulled me out, another drunk driver comes by, smashes my driver's side, barely misses me as I'm laying on the ground unconscious. They thought I was dead because that car just spun right around me. Again, God, even though I hadn't even received God. Wake up to Metaflight above me, and I'm like, wow, this is not good. I didn't realize what was going on. I had to regain conscience every time. And then I hear the paramedics say, take him, and they're pointing at me. We don't think he's going to make it. And again, I'm accepting that I'm going to die for about the third, fourth time. And I just say, wow, this is it again. I've been here before. I know what this feels like. This is comfortable. I guess I can go now. I was just accepting it like always. Woke up in the hospital a couple days later, um, found out the people who hit us died on the spot to, to a driver and a passenger. Died on the scene, and uh, I had the worst of the injuries of the survivors. I was paralyzed for about four months. Had to learn how to walk. Had to learn how to do everything. I remember sitting many nights in my bedroom um, telling this God that I had heard of, just take me. I don't know you. I don't want this. I was in so much pain, I just didn't care. I said, I'm done with this life. I just don't care. Obviously... I didn't hear anything because I didn't recognize the voice. Went back to school. I don't know how, but I did. Went back to school, started taking some counseling. I was very depressed. Before that, I was a big party animal. I was the big man on campus, according to society, living for life. And uh, it was difficult going back to school to that after being so high and then being so low. And uh, the girl I was dating at the time, I was completely in love with me, but because I was so immature, just so broken, I didn't know how to love properly. Finally broke that relationship off. I completely devastated that. It was all my fault. Um, just started dating around. Again, the brokenness, I'd rather take some love than none. And my standard was, if you're pretty, you qualify. That's it. You don't have to have a heart. You just have to be really pretty. That led again to a couple other broken relationships, and then I met this girl in one of my classes, and she said, hey, I think I like you, like, we should start dating, and I was like, sure, whatever, let's just do it, not really thinking about it. She's the one that actually introduced me to a Christian church. Uh, she started reading the Bible when we would hang out, and I was like, I've heard that verse. I've heard about this God and this Jesus, but that's all I knew. She's like, would you be against going? And I was like, no, not at all, let's go ahead and go. First time I showed up to a Christian church was about three years ago. I walk in, similar to this. There's a band playing. There's people jumping up and down. I'm like, what is this? This is crazy. Like, who are all these people? Why are they so happy, first of all? I was like, why is everybody so happy jumping up for, like, something they don't even see? I was the biggest unbeliever. And I remember the, the preacher at the time said that he, he heard this voice that told him to go to an apartment because this girl was about to commit suicide. I was so angry. I was like, this guy's a fake. I'm done right there. I remember standing up and walking out. I said, I'll wait for you outside. As she came out, I told her, don't ever bring me back. This guy's a con. He's a fake. I don't want to hear it again. I was really angry. I was like, he's fooling everybody. About two months later, she said, hey, would you like to go back again? I was like, whatever. I don't have anything to do on Sundays. So I went back with her. And... Uh, 
That was the first time I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. As I, I sat there, he said, does anybody want to receive Christ? I was like, let's try this. So I put my hand up. That was the first time I felt the power of God. I cried for no reason. I cried because I felt this energy that I've never felt before. For once, I felt love. Um, that's the first time I see Christ. And then I started to uh, understand that something was wrong with my walk because I still wasn't believing that I was a son of God. I was what they call the lukewarm Christian or the living for the world, living for God. And then I walked into this place, almost broken and almost done with God again. And this was the first time that I had heard about a prophet. This was the first time that I had heard that you can actually listen to God's voice. And when I walked into this building, I was sitting right there on that front seat, and I had somebody prophesize over me, and her name was Avila, and everything that she has said has come true so far. And this walk um, has been the most amazing walk because now I live for God. And ever since then, I know what real love is and how to spread that to others. And so I encourage you tonight that if you have never felt God's love, just surrender to him. That's all he asks. Say, surrender. Just let me love you. Just ask for my forgiveness. I've given it to you. Just ask for it. And I remember going back to my room that second night I was at Epic. I got on my knees and I said, God, please forgive me for my sins. I accept Jesus as my Lord. And I started throwing up in this just throwing up, and I know that spirits were leaving my body as I was doing that. It went on for about 10, 15 minutes, and then I felt this overwhelming grace, peace, and joy, and that was the very first time I clearly heard the Lord say, I love you, and I accept you as my son. And so I just want you guys to know, if you're in that spot where I was, where you're just done, stop believing the lies. Because every single person that's in here is precious to God. And he will take you as is. Because all of you have the power to just change somebody else's life by accepting that you're a son and a daughter of God. And stop believing the lies of the enemy. Thanks, Saul. We have a powerful God, don't we? Come on up, Camille. Every single Thursday night we have a testimony, and they're all so different. Um, last week's was last time we had it was very different from Saul's, and yet they're all so powerful because it just shows how much God can change your life if you'll give Him what you have. Well, tonight, Camille's back. She's one of my favorite people in the world. And so I just want to pray over her before she thank preaches. You. Father, I just thank you for this powerful woman. I thank you, God, for the anointing that's on her life. I thank you, Jesus, for the humility that she walks in in front of all of us. Every time she speaks, she tells the truth the truth about her soul, about her life, and about all the changes and the differences that you're making. And Lord, I thank you for the way that Camille lives. 
I thank you just for the opportunity to see a woman of God who walks her talk in all the ways that matter the most when nobody's watching. So I pray that your anointing would be upon her in such a powerful way, and God, that we would open our hearts to what you desire to speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Whew. Saul, that was awesome. I feel like I have to like keep my eyes from being blurry so I can read my notes. So, I'm Camille Knopf. I am married to Eric Knopf, one of the two Erics. And I am really pumped to be up here tonight. Um, for those of you that have heard me before, I know what you're expecting. You're, ex you're expecting me to talk about genitalia and mention horse penises and rectal exams and what I do on a literally a daily basis but um it's gonna be a little different tonight so um for those of you that don't know me I'm a wife to Eric I'm a mother to Scarlett I'm a veterinarian I treat horses so I deal with large mammals on a regular basis. My daughter is nine months old, and she has probably seen more large animal genitalia than you have. We don't have to worry about the birds and the bees talk. She just hangs out with mom. Uh, but most importantly, I am a daughter of an awesome God. And he has changed my life. And I'm continuing to move forward in who he is and who he's created me to be. And in that process, I am learning all the time. And kind of a little secret, whenever I talk to you guys, it's kind of like a therapy session for me. <laughs> so you get to listen to it and I don't have to pay for it. Um, and I only ever talk on things that are something that I am currently learning about. So I'm not an expert on tonight's topic, but I kind of feel like I'm an expert on being a student of tonight's topic. So tonight's gonna be kind of intense. I actually don't have a talk that's like really full of jokes or kind of perverted stories. So if we have like any awkward silences, I probably will say a perverted story just to, kind of reminds me back. The Rotary Club actually had me, this is totally a tangent, they had me speak to one of the local high school classes, the biology classes, to like inspire them to have a career in science. And so like I went in and like this really cute like J. Crew outfit, and like I was like, all oh, these kids are gonna love me, and I'm gonna tell them how cool my job is. And they were, they did not care one thing about what I said. They were so rude, and I'm like going through my little slides about science and how science is so awesome. So I pretty much then just started telling really perverted stories and completely freaked them out and grossed them out because it was the only way I could get them to listen to me. So it's kind of my fallback, but that's not gonna be tonight. Oh, perverted story is like, basically my job dealing with horses is dealing with all their body parts. And so I mean perverted in a wholesome way. So get your minds out of the gutter. Um, so, kind of got to buckle up, because tonight's topic 
is heavy. I have to warn you, it's kind of heavy. But it's just like anything in Christ, it's always good news at the end. So tonight's is gonna be kind of tough, kind of heavy, but it's a happy ending. The topic of tonight is the importance of feeling and processing pain. Because life can be really painful sometimes. So, for those of you that don't know me, I'm a person that enjoys comfort. I like nice things. I don't like to be uncomfortable unless I see a purpose in it. I try to avoid, and I prefer to avoid, any unnecessary discomfort unless I see that there's an end result, that there's a reason for it. For example, getting my doctorate was really painful. I had to go through years of school, years of tears, years of studying. It was really hard and uncomfortable, but I saw my goal at the end was to get my degree and do my career, so I lived through it. Or I love going on missions trips, I love going to developing countries where it can be kind of rough and kind of uncomfortable, but I totally see the purpose in getting to know other cultures and getting to know other people and just experiencing that, and I see that, and I see the purpose in it, so I don't mind being uncomfortable. But like camping, on the other hand, I have not yet figured out the purpose of sleeping on the hard ground. <laughs> There's always a rock under me when I go camping. And I have yet to see like what my end result is with the camping. But these types of pain and discomfort are all external. They all have an end point. So even if you go camping, you know eventually you'll be back in your bed at home. Or if you're in a really tough school program, you know that eventually it will be done. But tonight, I wanna talk about a different kind of pain. And one that I've always tried to avoid and I became actually really good at avoiding it. And that's emotional pain. That's the pain of grief, the pain of hurt, the pain of sorrow. These are the types of pain that I don't think anybody enjoys feeling, and many of us avoid at all costs. Now the sad thing is, is there, and the reality is that we live in a world where we will all experience pain on some level. And you know, it's amazing how God works because to be truthful to you guys, I actually tore up my talk this morning and tore up what I was planning on speaking to you about and just really felt the Holy Spirit telling me that this is what I need to talk about tonight. And I kind of made my schedule today to just kind of stay at home, to not really answer any phone calls or any emails unless they were really important and just to focus on my talks. I really hadn't written it. And here I am at home today writing about pain and I had all these different circumstances happen today with people in my life that like, I tried to stay hidden in my home. But for example, I walked outside into my driveway with the baby to get her stroller. And there is my neighbor. She happens to walk outside at the same time. Well, if you guys heard Eric's talk a few weeks ago, you would know that our neighbor just lost her son this summer. He died. And so she walks out the outside at the same time as I do this morning, and she's grieving hard. And she's, she's like, I'm like, how are you doing? She goes, not doing well. And just was in this deep, deep stage of grief. Our neighbors on the other side have also lost a child in this last year. There are only three houses on our street. Two of the three houses have lost children in the last year. And there's a lot of grief and pain. 
Then I had a client that was supposed to come over and she was supposed to drop off some x-rays of her horse for me to look at. And she was supposed to just stick the x-rays under the doormat and leave and I told her I'd look at them tomorrow. Well, she comes and she rings the doorbell. This is today. I go answer the door and she's standing there. She hands me the x-rays and she has this look of pain in her face and she starts telling me how she desperately needs a job. She's in total financial ruin and she just wanted to tell me because she was willing to do anything to make any money. She's willing to muck stalls, pick up manure, feed horses, do anything dirty, anything nobody else would want to do because she was so desperate and she just had so much pain in her face. Then the third thing that happened today, granted I'm trying to stay hidden in my house right in the talk, is I have this client that I get her, her x-rays for her horse through my email and I look at him and I realize that her horse that she's had for 20 years is in a rapid decline. And she might very well lose her horse pretty soon because the x-rays looked so bad. And so I had to call her and give her the really bad news. And she was devastated. And if you guys have animals, some of you may know people that have animals that they can really suffer severe pain with the loss of an animal. This is the world we live in. And this was just today. And I think the sad thing is that what the church sometimes does to Christians is it kind of, not intentionally, but kind of makes us think that we're always supposed to feel happy. And whenever you see someone that's sad, our first inclination is to kind of get them over the sadness. Like, you're sad, but really we should be happy. We have a lot to celebrate. And we make people quickly move from those emotions of pain to try to make them feel emotions of happiness. But here's the deal, allowing ourselves to only feel happy is actually just as dysfunctional as allowing ourselves to only feel pain. And if we don't process emotional pain in our life, if we just kind of move on from it, we will never heal the wounds of our heart and we actually will only become hardened people. Every emotion does have a specific purpose and as you guys know by now, God created us and he created us to have all these emotions and he didn't create us to just feel happiness. So that's kind of what I wanna talk about tonight is how to deal with pain and how as Christians are we supposed to process pain. I was one of those kids that um, I always acted happy, especially when I was outside my home. At school, after school activities, I always had a smile on my face. I was always a happy kid. Um, I didn't grow up in a touchy-feely family. It's kind of what I looked at other families as. We weren't very physically affectionate with each other. You know, I didn't, to me it was normal. It was totally normal. But when I look at it now, it wasn't what I view as, you know, those lovey-dovey families that you see on sitcoms or maybe you feel like everybody else has where people are hugging and kissing and telling you I love you. That wasn't normal to me. My normal was not very affectionate. In fact, I'll never forget once when I was, I think I'd gotten into a fight with one of my siblings or something, and my dad was like trying to intervene and figure out what was going on, and I was really crying hard. I was really upset, and I was just feeling like this real injustice was going on. And I remember he looked at me, and he was like, when you cry, he's like, I stop listening to you. He's like, so you better stop crying, because I can't hear you when you start crying. And as a child, I started to kind of, you know, tell myself that strong women and strong men don't cry. Because that's not how you're listened. Nobody listens to a crybaby. Those are for weak people. 
I started telling myself that strong women, strong men do things for themselves. They get the job done and they don't really show emotion. And I feel like our culture just reinforces that. I mean, our heroes in our culture are these men and women of steel where nothing scares them, nothing makes them sad, they don't feel emotion, and they save the world and they're in charge. I mean, think of our superheroes. Think of the president of the United States. We look at him as this man that if we saw him crying, wouldn't people look at him like he was a weak person? We view our heroes to be people that show no emotion. It's not normal in our society to be vulnerable. It's not normal in our society to express a negative feeling. And when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, I don't know if you guys have ever seen your dad cry. I think most people don't see their dads cry very often, if at all. But I think for a lot of us, if we ever see our dad cry, it's very unnerving. At least for me, the very, I, I mean, maybe once I've seen my dad cry, and it's very unnerving. And I was wondering, thinking to myself, why is that? And I think that's because we look at our dads as these people, we look up to them, if they're good or bad, we look up to them, and we look up to people in power as people that don't show those negative emotions. So you feel weird to see someone that you view as strong showing a negative emotion such as tears. So here's something to think about. If we don't give ourselves the freedom and ability to express pain, these feelings become bottled up inside of us and they actually begin to harden our hearts. So often when these talks happen, I think it's, easy for us, it's easier for us to look at how this might apply to someone else rather than ourselves. So I kind of came up with a few things that you can kind of look at to see if this is something you might do or struggle with. Do you ever feel awkward hugging people? Or you prefer not to? This is totally me. Growing up the way I grew up and the personality I had, I have never really felt comfortable hugging people. And for years, I've just felt super awkward and preferred not to. The other thing I've always felt awkward doing is saying I love you to friends and to family. Does that come naturally to you? Do you tell your friends that you love them? Do you tell your family that you love them? Or do you feel kind of weird if you say that? Like, maybe I should say it to my mom, but I feel kind of weird doing it. Do you ever feel numb? Like something happens and you don't feel an emotion one way or the other? Like something great happens and you don't feel super happy or something bad happens and you don't feel super sad, you just feel kind of numb? Does the thought of sharing your needs with someone feel pointless or feel like that would be kind of weak of you to share your needs with someone? These are all symptoms, if you ever feel this way, that you're living under a lie. And here at Epic, if you've been going to Epic for a while, you know that we are a culture where we really like to tell the truth, even if the truth is kind of freaky, kind of like Saul was talking about, talking about prophecy and these kind of controversial topics. We're seeking the truth, we're all learning the truth together, and we want to tell the truth, because that's the only way that we can have a culture of freedom. But if you live in a world where people are punished for showing emotion, or if you have fear, that if you allow yourself to feel pain, that the pain will never cease, then you're living in a world that's ruled by a lie. And you're actually being a puppet, and you're not being yourself. The truth is, is that if we allow ourselves to feel pain, 
if we allow ourselves to process pain, only then can we move on in our lives with a healed heart. If we sequester pain in our hearts and we don't allow ourselves the right to get at what's inside, our hearts become hardened. And I think we often don't allow ourselves to process painful events in our lives because we fear there'll be no end point to the pain. We don't wanna open a door that we fear will never be closed. We don't wanna feel a negative emotion that we fear will overwhelm us and live with us forever. Our daughter Scarlett was born last November and I had a pretty easygoing pregnancy and I really looked forward to her birth as a time of celebration, as a time of joy, as a time of family togetherness. The reality is, is that the weekend of her birth was one of the most painful experiences in my life. And I am not talking about the physical pain. I had a really straightforward delivery. I was blessed with a super healthy baby after a short labor. But I'm talking about the pain of feeling abandoned by family that weekend. The pain of feeling unsupported and unloved by some of the people that I love the most during this time of huge transition for me and what should have been a time of great joy. I felt so drained and so used that I did everything in my power to keep myself from feeling the pain of those circumstances. I deliberately walled off the emotions of sadness and grief over my abandonment as I felt the pain was too great to experience and one that I wanted to avoid at all costs. As a result, I had wounds that could not heal because I would not allow myself to feel that pain. It was too overwhelming. And sadly, I actually, while I did succeed in sparing myself some of those feelings of mourning and pain, the other consequence was that I had hardened my heart. And I believe that I robbed myself of a lot of the joy I could have been experiencing in that season with my newborn daughter. You see, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a hardened heart with unhealed wounds and still feel joy. You can't have a hardened heart with unhealed wounds and still feel joy. The best you can do is get to a place where you don't feel sad and you act happy. The best you can do is get to a place where you don't feel sad and you act happy. And to many, this is an adequate place to settle. But the reality is you are just settling and the place you are settling is a place called numbness. So when you don't allow yourself to feel that pain and process it, you have a wound, you've cornered it off in your heart, your heart is hardened, and you actually don't feel those emotions, but you also can't feel the other extreme, you can't feel joy, because a cold heart can't feel joy. Fortunately, I have worked really hard over the last few years to get, to my, to get myself to a place where being whole and being healthy is totally a priority for me. It's number one in my life, being a whole and healthy person. I surround myself with truth tellers and I've put in the effort to exposing lies in my life so that I can walk in freedom as a daughter of Christ. And I wish I could tell you that once you get to that point, you can relax, but that's actually not the truth. 
Living in your true identity as a child of God is a place of constantly pressing in and walking forward and extinguishing the enemy's lies as quickly as possible. Because of the hard work I had put in, I did not allow myself to live in this state of numbness indefinitely. About two months after Scarlett's birth, I went to a trusted counselor and I opened up that festering wound. It was really, really painful. And the pain I felt was deep. And I cried many tears. But you know what's kind of cool? Has you ever wondered why God has given us the ability to cry? Because he didn't have to. I mean, what's the purpose of crying? Well, I really believe that God gave us the ability to cry because he knew we would need a way of purging the pain that happens in our life. He knew we would need a way of purging the pain that happens in our life. Crying is not for the weak. It's actually for the healthy. So, Matthew 5.4 is one of the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Part of the actual process of becoming a whole and healthy person is acknowledging and mourning pain so that we can be comforted and be healed. But here's the tough part, because God's not gonna do the work for us. And let's be honest, none of us like to sit around and think about emotional pain. It's not fun. I'll tell you, going through that healing was not fun. But I saw the end point, and that's what motivated me to do it. Most of the time, thinking about emotional pain, I think in our society, makes us feel very powerless. It can make us feel weak, it can make us feel helpless and hopeless. And focusing on it can actually just make us feel worse. I mean, who wants to sit around and just think about a painful thing that happened in our life? So our typical response is to ignore it and to ignore the emotional pain. And you try to ignore the pain of someone hurting you or ignore the pain of a devastating loss. But here's the deal. If we never mourn our pain, we will never receive comfort. So Matthew 5, 4, like I said, it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, you can look at it then this way. Cursed are those who do not mourn, for they will never be comforted. The Holy Spirit can't comfort you if you refuse to mourn. It says it in the Bible. So how do we mourn? So they just said, I don't really feel like sitting around. I don't know about you guys. I don't really feel like sitting around and thinking about negative things that have happened in my life. That sounds kind of miserable. So how do we process pain in a way that heals us and frees us? How do we process pain in a way that doesn't overwhelm us, that doesn't put us into a fog of despair? Because that's why we ignore it, right? We don't want to live a life of feeling pain. Processing pain does not mean carrying around daily pain with you doesn't mean carrying around a pain that taints everything good in your life. The healthy way to mourn pain in your life and allow the wounds of your heart to be healed is to accept the truth that there's a beginning and an end to the process. It's much the same way we mourn the death of a loved one. When my grandfather passed away six years ago, I felt like my heart was being ripped in two. He was not just a grandfather to me, but he was like a parent to me. 
I had a relationship with him where I saw him all the time. I felt safer with him than anyone else. He loved me unconditionally. He supported me. And I can easily say that he was one of the most influential people in my life. And when he passed, I mourned deeply. Going to his funeral, I knew that I was gonna see him in his casket. I knew that I was gonna cry many tears while we gave his eulogies and remembered his life. I also cried many times after the funeral, processing the reality that he was gone. But if you have mourned deeply the loss of a person in your life, you know that eventually the sting of the pain goes away. After the tears are gone and the memories are processed, I still miss him, I still feel sad at different events in my life, but the wounds are healed and the pain is processed. And because the pain has been processed, the pain does not own me. And I am not fearful that I will be overwhelmed with it. There was a beginning and an end. So this is the same way we actually need to process painful memories. If we fail to acknowledge painful memories, they don't go away. They sit and they fester in the dark, lonely places of our heart, and they are released in unhealthy ways. I think we all know the angry people, or the people that are like totally cool until they lose their cool, and it all explodes over what seems to be insignificant. Those people are people with unhealed wounds in their hearts, and people with pain. So here's the deal, we need to change our mindset we need to change the way we view emotional pain. It's in your control, it's in your grasp. It's not something where a dove needs to come down and force it on you. We, God has given us brains, he's given us minds, and we can deliberately choose our mindset on how we're gonna view emotional pain and painful things in our life. This is crazy, that memories that we avoid in our hearts, we should actually have the mindset where we welcome those memories so that we can mourn them and we can process them until the sting of the pain is removed. No wound is too deep. But what this calls for us to do is to remove fear from our lives and the fear of living in perpetual pain, because I think that's what a lot of us can be scared of. Our habits of not acknowledging painful memories is because we believe the lie that we need to self-preserve so we're not tormented in pain. In 1 John 4:18, it says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If we pluck fear out of our belief systems, we will see that fear makes us puppets on a string. It rules us and pollutes our thoughts and actions. So, let's get down to the practical. I'm the type of person that I can hear truth, I can think it sounds really good, but I am a hands-on, I mean, I cut things, I sew things, I release blood for a living. I'm a hands-on person, and I don't sit and deal with the theoretical. So, okay, we now all know we need to process pain so we can heal the wounds in our hearts and our hearts aren't hardened and we can feel joy, right? But how do we do that in a practical way? Because it's easy to say, maybe not easy to do, but it actually is pretty easy to do. We just have to, we have to do it. And here's the deal, the process of dealing with pain in your life is like developing a new healthy habit. It's like if you haven't been to the gym in months, like me, 
You know that when you first go, like maybe the first day you go, you feel pretty good. And then after the, the next day is hard, and the third day is even harder, and the fourth day like totally sucks, and the fifth day you're like, I think we need a rest, right? I think we need a rest. And then if you rest for too many days, then you start all back over again. But just like anything you change in your life, quitting smoking, stopping lying, going to school, actually doing your work, getting done with the class, you'll find that as you practice, it becomes part of your lifestyle and then it becomes a habit. And what we need to do is view processing pain as a way to develop a healthy habit in our life. Because we, as we grow in Christ, as we become, grow into our identities with Him, we're gonna nip the enemy in the bud because we're gonna have the tools, right? We're gonna have practice, we're gonna have the tools. And so the two months that I went of feeling really hardened in pain, well, my prayer is I get to the point where I process that pain and I move on, and I don't allow myself to sequester it in my life. So here's what you need to do. I'll give you guys some freedom here. So take notes if you're not like on Facebook, which if you're on Facebook right now, Eric wrote a really good blog today, so read that too, that's good. Um, so in order to really break free from painful memories, you first have to ask yourself some questions. Okay, self, is this even my problem? What do I believe will happen if I show this emotion? For example, if you're the type of person that struggles with saying, I love you, and you acknowledge, like, that's kind of awkward for me, you need to ask yourself, what are you afraid is going to happen when you say, I love you? Or if you're someone that's always angry, you know, people who have their identity, that just like they're the angry people, you need to ask yourself, you need to ask yourself, like, what, what am I afraid is going to happen if I put down my anger? If you ask yourself these questions, it's likely you're going to figure out a lie that you've been believing about yourself. For example, I am one of those people that it's really hard for me to express my needs to someone, to tell someone I need something. And when I asked myself, why is that hard for me? I came up with two things. One is because I don't think people will care. And two is because my needs are insignificant compared to other things. Well, acknowledging that actually gives me the opportunity to realize that those things are not true. And that's really powerful. After you do that, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to then show you what's true. And once you've accepted what's true, it's then time to do kind of some of the hard work and start changing some of your patterns and habits. You have to take steps to strengthen yourself in the areas that you are weak. For me, being an awkward hugger, I actually have had to practice hugging. And that's like really weird to say, but I'll be like, hey Camille, like don't stick out your hand, like hug that person and like just hug them. And it's like super <laughs> uncomfortable at first, but I will say that I've been, now when I hug you guys tonight, I'm not feeling awkward because I've practiced a lot, but I have to practice it. But for me, I'll be a testimony that after practicing hugging and like forcing myself to do it, it actually has become not so bad. Or saying I love you to friends. I was teasing Eric Waterbury the other day because he's very free in saying I love you. And I'm like, I say I love you back. I'm like, just let so you know, like for a long time, I was really awkward. And I just like texted it because I knew I should, but it was, I just felt awkward saying it. And what I encourage you guys to do, if you recognize that's the area you're weak in, is to do it. And the way I look at it, because like I said at the beginning of the talk tonight, I don't like to do things that are uncomfortable unless I see the reason in them. I view doing these awkward things kind of like how an adrenaline junkie views something like, 
I don't know, Eric, tell me about adrenaline junkie things, like jumping out of a plane. You're scared to do it, but you're kind of like excited to do it because when you're done, you'll have jumped out of a plane. And that's how I view doing these kinds of things. Like you're scared to do it. It's actually like kind of, let's be honest, like not really fun. Like I did jump out of a plane with Eric and like it's really only fun when my feet were on the ground. I knew I wasn't dead. And then I was like, that was awesome. But the whole other time I was like, this sucks. And which we did jump out of planes in Mexico, which like was crazy. But um, so I have to look at it and see like what my end goal is. And that's how it's easier to deal with the discomfort. So for me, saying I love you when it feels uncomfortable, I keep doing it because my end goal is to be someone that can freely say I love you to people that need to hear it. Here are some truths about facing reality just to kind of finish up here for you guys. One is if you haven't addressed a lot of painful memories in your life, when you start this process, it's likely that you're gonna have kind of like a lot of emotions come out. And that's totally normal because we've bottled up. We all know the people that are like ticking time bombs. Like you're like, oh, just wait till he explodes. Like if you've kept that inside, like if you let it out, even if it's in a healthy way, like don't be surprised if you're like, oh, I don't know why I can't stop crying, you know, because you've held it in for so long. You might not just feel sadness too, you might feel anger, you might feel feelings of being overwhelmed, and that's totally normal. You're just making the steps along the path to wholeness. Here's the other caveat. You need to express your emotions in a way that doesn't heal other, hurt others. So the way to do it is to not like go to your boyfriend and be like, all right, here's the painful memory time and just kind of unleash it on him. Because he won't like it. And you need to do it in a way that's not gonna hurt or punish other people because of your painful memories. So you can do it, people have all different kinds of ways to do it. For me, I pay people to listen to me. Maybe I don't feel as bad if I pay them to listen to me. So I'm like, here counselor, here's your money. Now listen up, you know, here we go. But you can do this with like a trusted friend, a mentor, you can journal. You can just talk to God in your journal and be like, dear God, this is what sucked and happened to me and I'm just gonna let it all out on this piece of paper and hand it out to him. There's no one formulaic way of doing it. You just need to do it in a way that's not gonna punish other people. And this is all part of being good stewards. I just wanna press on you guys that this is totally in your control. Like God created us to make decisions and choices. We are not his puppets. We don't live in this life as puppets on a string. If you feel like a puppet, you've made yourself a puppet. And you need to look and see what's mastering that strings because it's not Jesus Christ. Right. You need to look at what's going on. If you're walking freely in Christ, you should feel like a free woman or a free man because that's who he created us to be. So one thing I want to leave you guys with, it's kind of an interesting tidbit and an encouraging tidbit. When we're born as babies, did you know that we all actually are born with the ability to process emotion and work through heartache? So this is something you kind of like tap into from like your fetal days. We actually are all born with this. So if you tell me, girl, I have never been able to practice heartache and get through it. You actually have, I promise you. I look at Scarlett, she's nine months old. And this girl has no problem expressing her emotions. I know when she's happy, I know when she's sad, I know when she's angry, I know it all. She's very expressive. And Scarlett has not been taught, and I pray that she won't be taught this, 
Unfortunately, most of, our, most of us are at some point in society, but she has not been taught that it's not okay to show her emotions. So when she, for example, say she's playing on the ground with all her toys, and say there's another little baby girlfriend that she's playing with. Maybe it's Addie, but probably not Addie, because Addie's very nice to Scarlett. But say this other baby comes and takes her toy that she's playing with. Well, what does the baby do? They start crying, right? Because the toy is taken from them. Well, they're, what they're doing is when they're crying, they're actually purging that hurt. And they're purging that emotion of hurt. The toy is taken from me, I'm upset, I'm crying, I'm purging that emotion of hurt. Then when the crying is done, what happens? The emotion's dealt with. And then she has another toy and she's happy again. So see, there's no wound that left festered. She's hurt, she dealt with the emotion, she got the emotion out, and then once it's dealt with, she's happy and she's moved on. So I just wanna encourage you guys that we all are capable of doing this. And no matter what kind of pain you've had in your life, and I know many of us here have felt deep, deep, deep pain. Saul talked about some of the pain he had in his life. There is no wound too deep and there's no wound too old. No matter how long ago, there's no wound too old and it's never too late to get healing from those that we can totally live lives where we don't have to be numb to anything. And we don't have to be scared of the pain because there is an end point and it won't be something that lives with you forever. And my prayer for all of us, I'm a doctor of animals, and my prayer for all of us is that we become doctors of our own hearts, where we immediately can diagnose the wounds of our heart and we immediately can begin the process to heal them. And we don't live and wait for an infection to take place. I just pray that all of us can really live those lives because that's where our Creator intended us to. And so I just wanna be encouragement to you guys. Life's not easy, it's full of pain, but God has totally given us the ability to deal with it so that we don't have to live and hide that and bury that inside. So that's all I have for us tonight.